You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. We're going to continue our study this evening talking about the three angels' messages. Uh, Today we uh, look at a very important subject, one that in essence lays the foundation for everything else that is to come. It's uh, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. We're not going to actually get into the essence of the first angel's message. That's actually going to happen tomorrow evening. But we are going to look tonight at the everlasting gospel because that, that is the foundation of the three angels' messages. So we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And these are familiar words to us. I know we've probably read it and heard it, and many of us could probably quote it from memory But they are important words. They are profound words. They are urgent words. Revelation 14, 6, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Now, of course, this angel represents the people of God proclaiming the everlasting gospel at a time when the hour of his judgment has come. And, of course, that's the next verse that talks about the hour of his judgment. In Bible Commentary, Volume 7, we have a statement from the pen of inspiration. It says, Christ is coming the second time with power unto salvation. To prepare human beings for this event, he has sent the first, second, and third angels' messages. These angels represent those who receive the truth and with power open the gospel to the world. So doubtless, uh, angelic beings, angels as we think of them, are involved in assisting in the proclamation of the three angels' messages. But in a very, very real sense, you and I are the angels. The word angel in the Greek, angelos, literally means messenger. We are the messengers given a message to take to the world. It is a message that prepares the way for the second coming of Jesus. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said these words in 31 AD, speaking to his disciples, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. Notice here Jesus, speaking to his disciples, just a handful of believers, said, before I come back, the gospel will be preached In all the world. The fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus made in 31 AD is being fulfilled in 2021 in Revelation chapter 14 in the proclamation of the three angels' messages. The prophecy given by Christ is fulfilled when the everlasting gospel is taken to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The next part of the verse, verse 6 says, Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The reason the everlasting gospel is to go to all the world because the three angels' messages prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. And of course, the second coming of Christ is going to affect the entire world. So the warning message, the message of preparation, must be given to all the world. 
Thus the gospel goes to every nation and kindred, tongue, and people. There is but one gospel to save mankind. It was first proclaimed in Eden, and it was repeated from generation to generation. The first reference that we have of the gospel or the everlasting gospel, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is after the fall. Jesus is speaking to the devil. He says, I will put enmity, that is mutual hatred. Don't, don't forget that. The everlasting gospel has something to do with putting mutual hatred or enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, the church, and between your seed and her seed, capital S, it's referring to Jesus, he, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, a reference to the cross. So the everlasting gospel first mentioned after the fall of Adam and Eve had something to do with God changing the heart to put mutual hatred or a hatred towards sin. We talk about the new covenant. The new covenant is a change of heart. It is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus said, you're going to end up hating sin. That's what my grace will do. The Apostle Paul goes on and says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I love this verse, I am not ashamed, he says. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Because he has seen what the gospel of Jesus can do in the hearts and the lives of people. Paul had seen what the gospel had done for him. He had seen what the gospel had done in the lives of pagans to whom he preached. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is no fairy tale. This is no man-made theory. It is the power of God unto salvation. Now, of course, the word used there for power isn't just power. It is the Greek dumanis. We get the English word dynamite from the word dumanis. There's, there's something powerful about the gospel. Now, if I were to ask you, I said, um, could you open your Bible to the gospels? Where would you open your Bible? You'd probably open it to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What do we find in the gospels? Well, we find a story. We find the story of Jesus. We read about his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. It talks about his ascension, his teachings. So the gospel of Jesus is the story or the good news about Jesus and what Christ's life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension means to you and I. So when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about a person. We're talking about our Savior. We're talking about, we're talking about Jesus. And the good news is that when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about Jesus, we're not just simply talking about a historical individual as many other religions have their historical leaders, but we're talking about a person who is alive even now ministering for us in the heavenly sanctuary. We're talking about a, a real Savior, a personal present Savior. We're talking about, talking about Jesus. Now, as best we can tell, uh, the word gospel was first used by the Greek-speaking residents of Alexandria. It's a little history behind that. Alexandria was dependent upon ships to bring them grain. 
And when these ships laden with grain would make their way into the port of Alexandria, somebody was given the work of going throughout the city and proclaiming the news that the grain ships had arrived. This work of proclamation of good news eventually became known as gospel. And it's interesting that when the Bible writers were looking for a word to describe the good news that Jesus, the living bread, has come down from heaven, they used the word gospel. Good news, the life giver, life giving bread, spiritually speaking, has come down from heaven. Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the disciples were surprised by this. And they said, Lord, this is a hard saying. And Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing, but the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. To feast upon the living bread is to receive the word of Jesus, to exercise faith, to believe the promise, to cling to Jesus. So the gospel, according to Paul, he says it's the power of God that leads to salvation, first to the Jew, then the Greeks. Verse 17, for in it, what is the it? The gospel. What is the gospel? It's the story of Jesus. So in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So what is righteousness? Simply put, righteousness is right doing. Now our problem is that our righteousness, according to the Bible, is as, can you finish the verse? Filthy rags. It's no good. It's no good. Now, what happens if, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I have a miraculous experience, and for the rest of my life, I have perfect Righteousness. I mean, I don't sin from here on out. What's wrong with that righteousness? Why can't that righteousness save me? Because there is a history of sin. And the only kind of righteousness that is good enough to save anyone is a perfect righteousness from birth until the very end. Of course, if you have perfect righteousness, you probably won't die. <laughs> But Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died not because of his sins, but he took our sins upon him. And it's this perfect righteousness, this right doing of Jesus, that Jesus gives to us in exchange for our unrighteousness. This was an amazing thought to the Apostle Paul because he was a, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was zealous for good works. If anybody could obtain righteousness, it would have been a Pharisee. It would have been Saul before he became Paul. He did all the right things. He tried his very best, but when he saw the righteousness of Jesus, he said, I am the chief of sinners. And God in his grace, in his mercy, Jesus says, yeah, let me, let me take your filth. Let me take that robe stained with sin. I'm going to give you my perfect righteousness. And you're going to stand before my Father just as if you have never sinned. Clothed in my spotless robe of righteousness. And no wonder Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
He said to his countrymen, you're about going about trying to obtain a righteousness and you're ignorant of the righteousness of God that has already been given. Christ, our righteousness. But how do we obtain, how do we obtain this righteousness that, that Jesus gives us? Paul goes on and he says in verse 17, for in it, in Christ, in his life, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I'm going to talk later this week about a, a dangerous deception. And it is a movement permeating through Christian churches of all denominations where we make decisions based upon how we feel, not based upon what the Bible says. So if we feel righteous, then we are righteous. But if we don't feel righteous, well, then there's no hope we're not righteous. Instead of staking our faith on the promises and the word of God, we're building our faith on our feelings. That's a dangerous thing. That's a counterfeit. Did you know the devil can influence the way you feel? Of course we know that. That's why the Bible tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. Trusting in the promises of God's word, trusting in what Jesus says. Now, Everybody today wants power. Power of some kind. Some seek it by means of wealth. Others through politics or position. Others through learning. Still others through the indulgence of selfish pleasure. But whatever the means, the object is the same. People want power. Is it wrong to want power? Depends. I want power. But what do I want power for? After all, Paul says the gospel is the what? The power of God. That's the kind of power we want. We want the Spirit working within us. Notice the statement from the book Amazing Grace, page 104. Our condition through sin, she says, is unnatural. And the power that restores us must be what? Supernatural. In other words, the power that's needed to transform a sinner into a saint is outside of us. It's a supernatural power. And she goes on, she says, otherwise it has no value. There is but one power that can break the hold of evil from the hearts of men, and that is, that is the power of God. That is the gospel. The gospel that Paul was not ashamed to proclaim because he knew it was the power of God. So today we want to talk a little bit about this gospel power. How do we obtain it? What is it? How does it work? within the heart of the believer, the power of God. So Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Now just follow, follow Paul here. He says, From creation we can see the characteristics or the attributes of God. In other words, God's power is revealed through creation. Well, that makes sense to us. We understand that. He goes on, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So when we look at the world around us, we can see God's creative power revealed. 
we can catch a glimpse of how powerful God really is. Now, let's just use one example here. Uh, if, if we look at the sun, now we know that our sun in our solar system is obviously much bigger than, than the earth, but in comparison to some of the other stars or suns that we know about in the universe, our sun is fairly small. It's on the smaller scale to some of the other big, the big suns. Now, there is a lot of energy, there is a lot of power contained in the sun. Some scientists have spent some time trying to figure this out, and it's amazing. They say that in one second, there are 400 trillion trillion watts of power released by the sun. Now, of course, we don't get all that power. But if we could get all that power at once, that would power everything electric on earth for 50,000 years if we could tap into the power released by the sun in one second. Now, where did all that energy come from? Where did that power come from? God made it. And God not only made our sun, he made the entire universe. And by the time God was finished creating, was he running low on power? Of course not. God is infinite with his power. So just by looking at the things that God has made, we begin to realize, wow, this is a very powerful God. His creative power the power that's made all things, he is a great God. He is a powerful God. And this is the God who wants to save me and save you. All things are possible, the Bible says, to him that believes. You see, the problem isn't that God doesn't have the power. He's got all the power in the universe. The problem is we don't always have the faith that unleashes the power of God to work within us. In our hearts. So the power of God is seen in creation. And since the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it follows that the gospel is the manifestation of the creative power of God for the salvation of man. Take a look at this verse. Why do we need to have a savior that has creative power? Well, Second Corinthians chapter five seventeen says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what's the word? Creation. Only the creator can create. So in order for us to be a new creation, we must be saved by the creator. Does that make sense? And of course, the Bible goes to great length to tell us that Jesus is the creator. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Christ is the active agent. He's the creator. He's the one that spoke the word. And all things came into existence. You see, when we, look, when we look at nature, we can see God's power manifest. I mean, just think of the flowers. My wife loves flowers. She can't get enough of flowers. So I try to get her flowers from time to time. And her favorite flower of all is an orchid. And orchids aren't the cheapest flowers. So one day I came up with an idea. I was at the store and I walked by and saw a beautiful orchid plant. And I took out my phone and I took a picture of it and I sent to the text and said, hey, I got you some flowers. Well, she thought the flowers were coming and I said, no, that's all. You're just getting the picture. She's not the same. She says, the picture's not as good as the real thing. She loves flowers. But when we look at flowers, we see how delicate they are. We can see God, this great, big, powerful God that made the sun and made the universe. And yet he's, he's so gentle in creating the flowers and the colors. What a creator. 
And our creator God is concerned about the little things. You know what amazing facts? We do a radio program called Bible Answers Live, and we always start the radio program with a little amazing fact. We usually do it on a Sunday evening. And a few years ago, I was actually working on an amazing fact for the radio program, and I came across the Bathy Gobus fish. Just a little guy, maybe an inch and a half. That's how big he is. You see a picture of him on the screen. Now, this little guy is interesting. He likes to swim around in tidal pools. They're on the, on the side of the ocean. So as, as the water low tide and as the water washes out, the tidal pools left in the rocks, that's where you find these little goby fish. And the amazing thing about this particular type of fish is that he likes to jump from one tidal pool to another. And he will jump from one pool to another and then from that pool to another and another and another and another. And he can go a long distance just jumping from one pool to the other to the other. And the scientists looked at this and they began to wonder, well, how does this little fish know where to jump? After all, he's in the water and he's below the water and then it's surrounded by rock and there's another tidal pool over here. How does he know that there is a pool over here? And if he does know that there's a pool there, how does he know what direction to jump and how does he know how far to jump because he never lands on the rock, he always lands in the water. So they did some kind of scientific research on the goby fish. And what they discovered is that at high tide, when the water covers the rocks, these little fish sort of swim around, and amazingly enough, they have the ability to memorize every rock, every bulge, every dip, and somehow they're able to calculate where the water will pull. So that when the tide is out and they're in their little pool, they have this three-dimensional map impressed upon their mind and they can jump from one tidal pool to the other without ever landing on the rocks. Now that's a creative God that thinks of the little things. Why didn't God just say to the little fish, you know what, just stay in your tidal pool. No, God was creative. He said, you know, if you want to jump, I'm going to let you jump. And he created this incredible ability... Now, how could that come about through evolution? How many dead fish would be lying on the rock before they figured out where they need to land to get in the pool? It wouldn't work. It had to all work at the very beginning. We can see God's handiwork, the creator, reveals his, his power, but his tender care of all of his creation in the things that we see. Now, question. What is the relationship between the creative power of God and Christ and him crucified. How do we connect the power of God, which is part of the gospel, with the fact that the gospel is that Christ rose from the dead? Here's an interesting verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit, from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give to you or to your mortal bodies, sorry, let me read that again, who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So the same creative power that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says it's that power, that creative power, that God wants to put in you and that will enable you to live a victorious Christian life. Of course, that's not the only verse that says this. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. Notice the next part, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory or the power of the Father, even so we should walk in a newness of life. 
So the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that can raise us to be true Christians. Now this is such an encouraging verse for me. I mean, you can't think of a condition more hopeless than a dead person. I mean, really, they can't even wiggle their finger. They, are just, they have no power. They're at the end of their rope, so to speak. <laughs> Nothing they can do for themselves. And yet this is used as an illustration to tell us that if the power of God can raise the dead, there is no excuse for you. God can raise you to a newness of life. Amen? And of course, even death isn't a problem in a literal sense because Jesus is coming again and he's going to raise the dead. In other words, there is nothing that God cannot do. Oh, I meet people all the time. And they say, Pastor, I've gone, I've gone too far. I'm a great sinner. Pastor, you don't know the hold that that sin has held in my heart and I just can't seem to shake it. Oh, Pastor, I pray and pray and I just seem to stumble and fall and fall and Tell them, friend, don't give up. You're looking to your own power. If you're trusting in your own strength, you will never make it. But with God, all things are possible. Look to Jesus. Look away from yourself. Look to your kind, compassionate, merciful Savior. He can save. He can save to the uttermost, the Bible tells us. Okay, what must we do in order to have this creative power of God Work within us. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. But, Paul says, without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Jesus. How do we please God? We do those things that are pleasing to Him, right? We can't do things that are pleasing for Jesus if we don't have faith in Jesus. Now, notice the next part of the verse. you, You don't want to miss this. For without faith, it is impossible to please Him... For he who comes to God, that's you and I, we come to God, we must believe that God, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now let me pause right here. So if we want to have that creative power working within us, the Bible says we need to have faith. And in order to have faith, we need to believe that God is who he says he is. God is who he says he is. Now, According to the Bible, what does the Bible say about God? The Bible says God is love. You know, this is the first step, friends. We need to believe that God loves us, that he really loves us, that he's concerned about us, that he wants to save, he wants to work within us. Sometimes we think God is upstairs and he's got his arms folded and he's looking down and we say, Lord, please help me, I'm struggling. And he says, ah, you know what? I don't think you're sorry enough. (laughs) I want to let you struggle a little bit more. No, that's not what God is like. According to the Bible, God is standing, reaching down from heaven saying, look to me, I want to save. Turn to me, turn to me. So step number one, we must believe that God is who he said he is. He is love. Secondly, we must believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I mean, if you really believe that God loves you and you ask him for help, why would he say, no, I'm not going to help you? If we're struggling to gain the victory of something in our life and we go to Jesus and we say, Lord, please help me, and we think that God loves us, why would we think that God wouldn't answer our prayer if we're asking sincerely for his help? Are you with me? So people say, oh, I have faith, I have faith. But do you really have faith? 
Do you really believe that God is who he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him? Notice this statement that we find in um, Review and Herald, October 18, 1898. Notice the date, 1898, 10 years after that famous 1888 general conference session. She writes, the knowledge of what the scripture means when urging us the necessity of cultivating faith is more essential than any other knowledge that can be acquired. In other words, to understand what it is to exercise faith, she says, is the most important thing that we can understand or acquire. So how do we exercise living faith in Jesus? Well, we need to believe that God is, that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We need to come to him and we need to ask, we need to be sincere. But notice this, Matthew chapter 8, this is a great story. It says, when Jesus had entered into Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And uh, Jesus said, I jumped too far forward. Wait a minute. Did I go way too far forward? There it is. Okay, get back to where we are. Now, so Jesus enters Capernaum. A centurion comes to him and says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, if I was the centurion and I came to Jesus and asked that question, and Jesus said, oh, sure, I'll come to your house, what do you think I would do? Probably the same thing that you'd do. I'd say, hey, everyone, get out of the way. Jesus is coming to my house. Don't hold him back. He's on a mission. It's an important mission. Christ is coming to my house. But the centurion doesn't say, all right, Lord, well, please hurry because he's really sick. What does he say? Verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. This is amazing. First thing that we notice from the story is that Jesus helps those who feel their unworthiness. He said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I need your help, Lord, but I'm not even worthy that you come into my house. And yet he still believed. He said, Lord, all you've got to do is just, just speak the word. And then verse 9 He says, for I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, assuredly, I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. I like the verse that says, Jesus marveled. Can you imagine the scene? All the Jews are standing around, and suddenly the centurion comes up, and they have this conversation. Jesus says, all right, I'm going to go to your house. centurion says, Lord, just speak the word. My servant will be healed. And Jesus turns to the crowd. He marvels. And he says to those standing around, I have not seen this kind of faith, no, not in Israel. So something that the centurion did is a demonstration of the kind of faith that we need to have if, if we're wanting God to do something special for us, something in our lives. So... Notice the following two things. Number one, the centurion depended upon the creative power of the Word of God to heal his servant. He didn't need the presence of Jesus. He needed the Word of Jesus. Too often our faith is based upon an experience. We say, Lord, if I feel forgiven, then I will believe that you forgave me. The Bible doesn't tell us to wait 
to feel forgiven. The Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There it is. You got the word of God. Now, yes, the feelings often do come, but our faith is not based on the feeling. Our faith must be based upon upon the word of God, you see? That's what it is to exercise faith. Simply taking God at his word, even if we don't feel anything, or even if our feelings might be contrary, we can still claim the promise of God and say, Lord, I believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. Point number two, faith then simply is trusting the word of God, that the word of God has creative power to accomplish whatever God says. Faith is trusting that God's word has creative power. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, darkness upon the face of the deep. Notice the next part of the verse, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now the word hovering there from the Hebrew, it carries the idea of pent-up energy. It's as if you have a spring and you press that spring down between your hands and you have all that pent-up energy just waiting to move your hand and suddenly the spring jumps up. So at the beginning, it describes the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, hovering over the face of the waters and the Holy Spirit is waiting for something. What's the Holy Spirit waiting for? He's waiting for the Word. And who was the one who spoke? According to John 1.1, Christ is the Word. Let there be light, and immediately the Holy Spirit made it so. You see, whatever God says, the Spirit always does. Thus we're reading Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them. Verse 9, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood firm. We can see this illustrated in the story we have in the gospel of the disciples on the little boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, and they find themselves in a terrible storm. You remember the story. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And they're fearing for their very life. And finally, somebody realizes, wait a minute, Jesus is here, and he's sleeping in the midst of the storm. And they wake him up, and they say, Lord, don't you care that we perish? (laughs) Of course, Jesus cares that we perish. That's why he cares. And of course, Jesus gets up, and he says to the wind and the waves, he says, peace, be still. And there's a great calm. So let's just suppose for a moment that there we are in the boat and and we're watching the disciples going back and forth. Jesus is still sleeping in the back of the boat. And Peter, sort of the spokesman of the group, he says, you know, I think I know what Jesus would do. He says, don't worry, don't wake up Jesus, just let him sleep. And Peter goes and he grabs grabs the sails of the boat. The wind's just blowing and the waves are crashing in. And Peter gets up there and he says to the wind, he says, stop, 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 stop. Says the waves, be calm, be calm. (laughs) Do you think anything would happen? I think the wind would say to the waves, look who's talking. It's Peter. We don't have to listen to Peter. But suddenly when Jesus got up in the boat, and Jesus said to the wind, be calm. And Jesus said to the waves, be flat. Suddenly the wind said to the wave, look who's talking. It's Jesus. It's the Creator. There is power in the Word of Jesus. Are you with me? When Jesus said the Word, the Spirit made it so. So if you find the promise 
that Jesus gives you personally, individually. You claim that promise. You believe that promise. You hold on to that promise. And the Spirit makes it a reality in your heart and in your life. That's the power of the gospel. Now, there are three manifestations that we see in Scripture of the creative power of God exercised for man's salvation. We've got three theological terms, the first being justification. So through the life and the substitutionary death of Jesus, the power of God was manifest for our justification. Justification, standing before God just as if we have never sinned. In other words, it's the imputed righteousness of Jesus. So we give him our unrighteousness in exchange for his spotless robe of righteousness. That's, that's the only righteousness that saves. Now, friends, don't miss this point. It's not Christ's righteousness with a little bit of my righteousness. It's not my righteousness with a little bit of Christ's righteousness. Incidentally, that's Catholicism. It's all Christ's righteousness that saves us, not our righteousness. For the just shall live by faith in his righteousness, not in our righteousness. Even though our righteousness might seem to be pretty good, but that's not the kind of righteousness that can save anyone. Our righteousness is response to his righteousness. It doesn't add to his righteousness. It's simply our response to his goodness and his grace. Are you with me? We love him because he first loved us. We do those things pleasing to him because he has given us his righteousness. It's in, it's, it's in the protection of Christ's righteousness that we can truly be free to do those things pleasing to him. If we're trying to do things to earn our own way into heaven, there is no peace. We're worried. We have no joy. We're always real careful. Oh, I hope I'm good enough to make it into heaven. There's no peace. But if we can lay hold of Christ's righteousness, then we have peace with God and we go about doing the very best we can because we love Jesus and we want to please him. It's not to try and save ourselves. Are you with me? Friends, this is good news, amen? This is the everlasting gospel. This is what sparked the Protestant Reformation. Saved by his righteousness. So just as Noah and his family were saved when they were in the ark of safety, so we are saved from the condemnation of God's broken law when we are in Christ. Now there's two phrases that Paul uses. The one is to be in Christ, that's justification. The other is to have Christ in you, that's sanctification. You see the difference? So we are in Christ, justification, but Christ is in us, that's sanctification. Now here's a verse, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now wait a minute, I first read this verse, I thought, oh, so is that how you get in Christ Jesus? In order to be in Christ Jesus, you need to make sure that you don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Is that what the verse says? No, what the verse says is, if you're in Christ Jesus, you will not walk according to the flesh. Are you with me? Can you see the difference? We don't get in Christ Jesus by trying to be good, 
Because we're in Christ Jesus, we are good. You understand the difference? That's justification. Secondly, the other theological term that we sometimes use is sanctification. That word simply means to be set apart for a holy use. It is having Jesus work in us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Sanctification is having the creative power of God. This is such an exciting part of the gospel. It's having the creative power of the Holy Spirit working within to reveal in us the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is what we as Christians are really looking for. We can't produce the fruit of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can produce genuine love and peace and patience and gentleness, goodness, self-control. These are things that the Spirit does. Those are the things that we ought to seek, but it only comes by allowing the Spirit of God to take possession, to take control of the heart, you see. Then sanctification can reach its fullness. Last line, it says, It is Jesus imparting his imputed righteousness to us through the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's good news. Amen. And then, of course, the third great miracle of salvation is what we call glorification. This is that uh, miraculous change from mortality to immortality that takes place at the second coming of Christ. We'll be delivered forever from our sin-cursed environment, and we will be restored to -to face-to-face communion with God. Our salvation will be gloriously complete. Three phases in the manifestation of the power of God. One, in the life of Christ, he lived a perfect life, perfect righteousness. He gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He rose from the dead. Jesus says, listen, I'm, I'm your high priest, and I, I'm going to do an exchange. You give me your filthy garments, and I'm going to give you my spotless robe. I'm going to demonstrate my power in giving you my righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness. Say, praise the Lord. That's where it all begins. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But more than that, Jesus says, you know, I don't only want to impute my righteousness to you, but I want to impart my righteousness as well as you learn to trust me more and more. And just as justification is the work of Christ, follow me closely, sanctification is the work of Christ as we believe. In other words, he does the work in us. Do we have a part to play? Yes. Paul says without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we must have faith. We must believe. But as we have faith, as we believe, as we surrender self, Christ is able to do a work within us that will cause us to stand back in awe and amazement and say, there is a God in heaven that changes lives. I might not be what I want to be, but by God's grace, I'm a long way from what I used to be. That's evidence that God is working in my heart and life. Oh, friends, it is so exciting being involved in evangelism and seeing this lived out in the lives of individuals. I was pastoring a church once, and we did an evangelistic series, and uh, there was a member of the church who had a brother who was not a Christian. He was actually the leader of a gang in that town. He was a tattoo artist. He was a skinhead. He had tattoos everywhere, but... 
the church member had a burden for his brother, and he went to him and said, please come to these meetings. And the brother said, I'm never going to those meetings. And so the church member came up with a plan. He said, listen, I'll tell you, if you come to but five of the meetings, just come to the first five meetings. If you come to those meetings, I won't ever bring up Christianity again. I won't bother you about, about just come to the first five. Well, finally, he convinced him somehow. And I remember the day when, when Pat walked into the church in that evangelistic series. He came in with a shirt without sleeves. And of course, you can imagine he's a big guy. He had tattoos everywhere. He had piercings everywhere. And I think he, he went before he came to church and found as much jewelry as he could around the house and stuck in his eyebrow, ear, you name it. He wanted to make a statement. He came marching into the church and he came and sat down right in the front of the church kind of disrupted the service somewhat because throughout the evangelistic series, it was one of these net meetings, and the preacher's preaching, but the whole time he's huffing and puffing, he's looking at his watch, he's moving around. You can hear him saying, oh, that's a waste of time. Finally, when the meeting was over, Pat was up from his seat, and he marched out of the church. And as he walked out of the church, you could almost hear the whole church go, Whew, glad he's gone. But his brother went back the next day and said, you need to come back. We have an agreement. You've got to come to the first five meetings. Reluctantly, Pat came to the second meeting, kind of the same thing, but the third meeting. The third meeting, the evangelist is talking about Jesus. He's talking about the everlasting gospel. He talked about how much Jesus loves every single person. He says that there is hope. You might have given up on yourself, but Jesus has not given up on you. And at the end of that gospel presentation, the preacher said, if there's anybody here who wants to start new and give their life to Jesus, while the music plays, I want to invite you to just come forward. He said, wherever you are, it's a, it's a net series. He said, wherever you are, you might be somewhere. You just come forward to the screen, to the amazement of the church. While the appeal was being made, Pat had his face in his hands, and he was, he was sobbing like a baby. Somehow the Holy Spirit had gotten a hold of him. At the end of that evangelistic series, we had the privilege of baptizing him and his girlfriend and marrying him that marrying them that same afternoon. His life had changed. He started coming to church. Yes, he had some growing to do, but his heart was in the right place. And God was doing some amazing things in his life. He became involved with the youth. He got involved in the church. And about a year or so later, I was going to go do an evangelistic series over in India. Now, I'd been to India before. It's a number of years ago when you could actually do evangelistic meetings in India. Um, I'd been over there before. And when you go to these villages and you do these big evangelistic meetings, you have thousands of people that come. And you got your projector, you got your laptop. And, you know, sometimes these things can disappear. So I wanted somebody to come along who could take care of the equipment. And I said, Pat, what do you think about going to India? Now, he's a big guy. He's still a big guy. I thought, nobody's going to mess with my equipment if Pat's around. And Pat said, oh, I'd love to go to the mission field. So there we were. We went over to India, and he did a good job. I mean, he made sure the laptop was there on stage. Projector was plugged in. Everything was working, and uh, he was doing a good job. But near the end of the meetings, um, I, was, I was finishing up. I finished my sermon, actually, and I was talking to the translator. We were talking about something, and I looked over, and there was the projector and the laptop just sitting on, on the stage, and I looked around. I didn't see Pat anywhere, and I was, I was surprised. I thought, boy, he's really conscientious. What happened to him? I mean, that's going to disappear if it just sits there. Now, of course, maybe some of you have experienced this. You've been to India, but if you go to India, into the villages, very often the woman will come to you 
and they will take your hand and they'll put your hand on their head and you can't understand what they say, but you know what they want. They want you to pray for them. They want, they want you to pray for their family. Maybe someone's sick. Maybe their child's sick. And so this would happen after the meetings. There were a lot of people that would come around and pray. Well, Pat went back to the car to pick up the bag and on his way back to the stage to get the projector, he had been surrounded by this group of women. Uh, they didn't realize he wasn't the preacher, so to speak. Uh, they thought God must be using him. He's here. And they grabbed Pat and they reached, he grabbed his hand and he had his hand on, on the head of one woman and he had his hand on the other. And I looked and his face was turned up to heaven. Tattoos on his arm. Earnestly interceding God on their behalf and knowing where Pat came from, I said, there is a God in heaven that changes people's lives. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. Oh, friends, we serve a mighty Savior. The Bible says we can't even begin to imagine the things that God wants to do for those that love Him. That's not only talking about heaven. It's talking about what God wants to do in us and for us even now. Of course, the great hope of the Christian, 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. What a glorious day that'll be. Get brand new bodies. I'm not as young as I used to be. I heard an old person tell me once, he says, you know you're getting old when you bend down to tie your shoe and you say to yourself, what else can I get while I'm down here? But when Jesus comes, you get brand new bodies, right? No more backaches. All things are made new. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, summarizes these three phases of salvation that we talked about. Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, that's justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand. So we are justified and we are sanctified and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's glorification when Jesus comes again. So three phases to the work that God wants to do for us. Okay, to live by faith then is to abide in Christ. It is through surrender that one is able to abide in Jesus. The light of Christ's presence in the heart dispels the presence of sin and brings forth righteousness. In this way, it is possible for a sinner to become partaker of the divine nature. This is one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, how according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I say amen to that. I say, Lord, I want you to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all I can ask or think by your spirit within me. Lord, I want you to do that in our church. I want you to do that in the Advent movement. After all, how are we going to take the everlasting gospel to all the world if we are not filled with the fullness of God? We need Christ in us. Oh, don't miss the statement. The little book, The Faith I Live By, page 125, she says, 
Do you ask, how am I to abide in Christ? In the same way that you have received him at first. You gave yourself to God to be wholly his, to serve and obey him. And you took Christ as your personal savior. You could not yourself atone for your sins or change your heart, but having given yourself to God, you believe that he, for Christ's sake, did all of this for you. That's pretty simple, right? That's something we can do. We can give ourselves to God. We can take Jesus as our personal Savior, and we can believe the promise that God has given us. She goes on to say, by faith you become Christ, and by faith you are to grow up in him by giving and taking. You are to give all, your heart, your will, your service, yourself, to him and to obey his requirements, and you must take all, you must take Christ, the fullness of all blessings, to abide in your heart, to be your strength, your righteousness, your everlasting helper, to give you power to obey. That's the experience that we want to have, not just once in our life, but every single day. Paul says, I die, what? Daily. All right, four practical steps. If there's anything you get out of the sermon, I hope you get these. Things that we can do. Number one, give yourself to Jesus. Give yourself to Jesus each and every day. Say, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. You know, before I fall asleep at night, I, I usually say, Lord, please wake me up in the morning. And there's a reason I say that. And you know, it's amazing. God wakes me up every morning. Sometimes it's like five minutes before the alarm goes off, but God wakes me up. And you know, when God wakes you up in the morning, the first thought in your mind is, oh, God woke me up. And I say, all right, Lord, today I want to give myself to you. I want to surrender my heart. I want to surrender my will. I want to surrender my mind. I want to give all that I am to you. So you do that. Say, Lord, you wake me up tomorrow morning, and I guarantee you he will wake you up. And the first thought in your mind when you wake up will be, i got to give myself to Jesus. Not only do we give ourselves to Jesus, but then we ask Jesus for strength because we believe that God loves us and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is God who arms me with strength. I love this verse, and makes my way perfect. Amen? And then believe. Believe that the Holy Spirit is working within you. Even if you don't always feel it, believe it. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged even if you stumble and fall. Just get on your knees and say, Lord, please forgive me. Help me to trust you more. Don't give up. Jesus doesn't reject you when you stumble and fall. He's a God of mercy and love. He wants to forgive and restore. Amen? Amen. You have the story of the prodigal son where the father ran a great distance. He didn't care that his son stank and smelled like pigs. He didn't care that he wasted his substance. The father was happy that the son came home. Friends, that's the experience every time we turn to Jesus. That's the experience. God loves us. And of course, finally, do this daily, every single day. Paul says, I die daily. And just as surely as we do this, God will fulfill his promise to us. Friends, in order for us to take the everlasting gospel to the world, we need to know the everlasting gospel for ourselves. When we are going to share with a co-worker or a family member or a friend about the power of God, we need to be confident in the power of God. You're not a real good witness when you say to somebody who is struggling with sin, 
you know, I, I think maybe uh, God might be able to help you. What kind of a witness is that? When you witness and somebody's going through a difficult time or they're struggling, you need to be able to go to them with full confidence and hope and say, hey, I know someone. I know someone that can set you free. I know Jesus. And they're going to say, well, I've gone too far. I don't think Jesus is strong enough or big enough to help me. And you say, wait a minute, I know the Creator. I know His creative power. Let me tell you what He did in me. We can give a word of testimony of what Christ has done. Revelation chapter 18 describes a mighty angel coming down from heaven. And the revelator says, the earth was illuminated with his glory. In order for the everlasting gospel, in order for the three angels' messages to light up the world, the angel, the church, needs to be filled with the Spirit of God. We can't do it alone. It has to be Jesus doing the work in us and through us. For without him, Jesus said, you can do how much? Nothing. Well, that's good news, friends. We serve a mighty Savior. And we can come to him every single day and drink from that fountain of living water that never runs out. Is that your desire tonight? Saying, Lord, I want to drink from that fresh fountain. Oh, maybe you've been in Adventist for many years. Maybe you're new to Adventism. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe even you're new to the Bible. Well, friends, I've got good news. Jesus can save. And he can save to the uttermost. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are indeed so grateful for the gospel. Oh, Lord, I need the gospel. We need the gospel. We need that spotless robe of Christ's righteousness to cover our filthiness, Lord. And Father, we need your Spirit to ever abide in our hearts, to make a change from the inside out. That when people see us, they see Jesus. They see something different. They recognize that there is a power from above working in us and through us. And Lord, we are looking forward to that day when Jesus comes when the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised and we shall be changed. Oh Lord, on that day, families will be reunited. Friends will meet again. And when we get to heaven, we will cast our glittering crowns at the feet of Jesus and say we are here because of the blood of the Lamb. Oh Lord, keep us faithful. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.